Hello and welcome to the BGS English Revision Podcast. Hello! I'm here with Mr Forster, uh, I'm Mrs Bale, and uh, we're going to be talking you through uh, an extract from Act 1, Scene 3 of Othello, uh, and we're looking at the question, explore the ways Shakespeare presents Othello at this moment in the play. It's a classic CIE question, isn't it? A very vague one. How does he present him? So we need to avoid um, the presents him in many ways kind of responses, don't we? Yes, we want to be specific uh, and elaborate on those points uh, in our essay. Yeah, because one of the central things that people sometimes get wrong when thinking about an argument or responding to these kind of quite broad CIE questions, they have introductions that say something like, Shakespeare uses many techniques to present the fellow in many different ways, and it doesn't really mean anything. So what we're going to try and do in our 25-minute podcast is set up a central thesis with our overall argument and then focus on the three main areas, because you've probably got about time for three probably main paragraphs alongside your introduction before moving towards your kind of concluding thoughts, really. Great. Um... So, yeah. Um, so are we, I've written a thesis for this, so um, a, an overall argument for what we think about this moment. So um, you might want to take a couple of moments to read the extract. Um, there is a handout um, that you can click. If you click on the in, in the notes on the episode, there should be a link to a, a, OneDrive, a OneDrive document that has a handout which has all the key vocabulary on it, has the question, and has some of the some bullet points about some of the areas that uh, Ms. Bell and I are going to talk about. So you might want to pause the podcast now. Go and read the question, and then come back when you've done that. Fab, welcome back. Hope you've had a chance to look at that. So the thesis I've come up with is this, because this is an extract when we finally see Othello talk. Um, he's been accused of all these things um, uh, by Brabantio, um, uh, and he's, this is his chance to respond in front of the Duke um, and in front of um, the assembled patriciate, so the noble orders of Venice, the noble classes. And so this is the thesis I've come up with. Although we've already seen his calm dignity in the face of Brabantio's armed men in the previous scene, it is only here in Act 1, Scene 3 that Shakespeare fully deconstructs the prejudiced idea of Othello as an uncivilised barbarian or beast, insidiously established by Rodrigo and Iago in the opening moments of the play. Defending his courtship and elopement with Desdemona, Othello's eloquent words skillfully refute the accusations of the domineering and blustering patriarch Brabantio. So we've tried to set up a few things that Mrs. Bell and I are going to analyse now, which is just the idea that the context of the scene um, uh, and the idea that what Shakespeare's trying to do, which is show us another side to Othello, that Othello doesn't fit these racial stereotypes of early modern society. He doesn't fit the, 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 the kind of the zoomorphic, bestial idea that's set up by Iago, that he's something different. He's something, and the tragedy of the play is, of course, that he fundamentally loses this by the end of the play. So what are we going to talk about first, Mr. Bell? What's the first area we want to look at? Uh, well, we thought we'd start with um, looking at Othello's eloquence um, and how that contradicts um, not only, as you said, the, the contextual um, implications of, of Othello uh, and also the, the way in which he's presented at the start of the play. Um, he is allowed to speak by the Duke and we see a contrast between Brabantio who's raging um, but just immediately before this extract uh, and Othello's calm eloquence uh, as you mentioned Mr Forster um, so we might want to look at, at the way Shakespeare structures his speech mm. uh, and What do you the, mean by that, the structure? Well the, the iambic pentameter structure which we, we know that Shakespeare associates with his sort of higher characters um, and which we wouldn't necessarily expect from Othello based on what's been said about him earlier in the play, um, he speaks he speaks with this iambic pentameter, this balance. And we can see that in the first the first line, most potent, grave and reverend signors, 
So um, he's using the um, polite uh, address to them uh, as well as using the iambic pentameter. Yeah, and even what is so different from the profanity-filled prose of Iago and Rodrigo, who have been on stage from the opening scene defined with these profanities, these irreverent, um, disturbing kind of language that's all in prose. Um, I mean, Iago has some shifts into verse and in soliloquies, but a lot of the opening play is in prose, and then we have this clear shift into Othello's rhetorical power here. Was there anything else you noticed? So, so the, the, the structure is obviously very interesting here as well. I think building upon Mrs. Bell's point is also the fact that just how much Othello speaks, he holds the floor. He's in front of the noblemen of, of Venice, the, the, the assembled patriciate, we could say. Um, all of, everyone who's important in Venice is here, and he is holding the floor. He's explaining to them. He's the one who's at the centre of this scene. So, so visually on stage, um, all eyes are looking at Othello. Othello is the centre of, of the action. This is the, the noble moor that we've been, that perhaps isn't um, what Iago has, has, has said about him. Yeah, exactly. And he um, he also he contradicts him, himself uh, in what he says and, and how he says it. So he says, uh, rude am I in my speech and little blessed with the soft phrase of peace. Um, and we can see why, why he's saying this. He, he's a warrior. You know, he, he's, uh, we've heard that about him already. Um, but he says it in, in iambic pentameter, as we said, um, and in a, in a way in which um, his lyricism comes through. Um, so not just uh, what he's saying, but how he says it um, contradicts his humility, where he says, I, I can't speak nicely, but, but he does. And there's a really interesting metaphor, because often one of the really easy things to analyse in any extract is finding metaphors and motifs, because it, it kind of forces you to, to not simply say, what is Shakespeare saying, but saying, how is he saying it? There's this idea of his tale being unvarnished. What do you make of the vehicle? So every metaphor, the tenor is the thing being described, and the vehicle is what it's being compared to. So what do we make of this, this vehicle, of, of the, a tale being unvarnished? What are the connotations of that for you, Mrs. Bell? Well, I suppose um, it's something being being sort of a polished or finished product. And he, he says, um, you know, my, my tale is unvarnished, it's, it's, it's raw, it's real. Mm. Um, uh, and in some ways you could look at it as it being... Such it's an authenticity. Like, yeah, authenticity, a, a genuine uh, truth, as opposed to something that's been um, coated in, in kind of um, niceties and things that would make it more palatable. Yeah, because it's got these two angles, hasn't it? The idea of it being rough and ready, um, uh, kind of a rude speech, but also perhaps for an audience, very different from Iago's slippery, sophisticated machinations that kind of undermine other people that are definitely not un unvarnished. Um, there's also another one that I think is quite interesting, it's just how, how rhetorically structured the speech is. That, you know, that I have taken away this old man's daughter, it is most true. True, I have married her. That repetition of true across different clauses. It's called anadiplosis if you want the term, but we don't really need that terminology here. What we can simply say is there's this rhetorical craft so rhetoric, rhetoric is the art of persuasive speaking or writing, um, and, the, and it's really crafted speech, isn't it? Is there anything else that you wanted to say about this first, that it was eloquence? Is there anything else that you had on this? Um, I think um, one thing I always notice about this one is um, when he, he almost mocks Brabantio's uh, accusations. He says um, uh, he's going to deliver the tale of his whole course of love. What drugs, what charms, what conjuration and what mighty magic. Um, this is what Brabantio's accused him of. And also this is a serious charge. In early modern yes. society he's accusing him of witchcraft. Yes. This is potentially something that is really threatening to particularly a North African uh, more, you know, who, uh, who, who isn't part of the, the Christian world of Venice, even though he's converted to Christianity. This is a pretty serious accusation. Absolutely, and I, I think Othello's going to 
uh, answer that charge by explaining love uh, and that's something that um, again elevates him above these these base accusations of Brabantio saying that Desdemona has been stolen um, and, and Othello is going to explain love to him uh, and as such I think um, he's going to give Desdemona um, more of a say in this and yeah, power I think her. we'll talk more about that in our third section of our essay but definitely it's this idea isn't it of, of, of him taking Brabantio's threat and turning it into a metaphor Brabantio says, you're, you're, you're a witch, you, you're, you use magic, and he says, the only magic was my words and the power of love. It's, <laughs> so it's transforming, it's transforming, <laughs> isn't it? A, a, a threatening accusation into a rhetorical flourish. And it shows the, the skill, the, the skill that kind of definitely um, shows how ironic it is when he says he's rough in his speech. He's, this is a skilled orator, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, should we talk then, there is something perhaps, so, so I, I put as our kind of second topic sentence, nevertheless, Othello does define himself by his violent past and military um, prowess. The innate ferocity that gave him his fame and won him Desdemona, and which will, in the tragic machinery of the play, bring about his ultimate downfall. Because there's these hints, aren't there, in this section, really, that although he is eloquent, there is this kind of bubbling violence beneath the surface of his language, isn't there? Oh, yes. Yeah, he alludes to his past, doesn't he, that um, since he was uh, seven years old, um, he's fought uh, on the battlefield. Um, and that sort of... It, um, he... Um, he says he can't say much about the world other than what, what pertains to war. Yeah. So he's definitely um, adding to that reputation that he has of being uh, of having a violent past. Yeah, and it's interesting that even his idea of language has been shaped by his experience. He says he's not blessed with a soft phrase of peace. The, idea that peace, um, the, the phrase of peace, the language of peace, is something he's not even familiar with, let alone peace itself. There's this sense that his language is imbued with a violence with that the, the is only appropriate for the tented fields, the fields of battle, um, where he's been since he was seven, as you said. I think there's an interesting kind of clash, like a genre clash here that I kind of see, that, that obviously the, the 1600s when this play is, is written and first performed is a time of changing genres in the theatre, a movement away from Shakespeare's history plays in the 1590s to the city comedies, um, and this play has that clash, doesn't it? A, a soldier who's suited to this world of tragedy, this epic world of, the, of, the, of history, um, is suddenly, the focus in this play is on his marriage, this domestic close setting. And I think that kind of comes out in this language, this generic clash that Othello being out of place in the, the, in the Duke's court. This is a man who's suited to the battlefield, isn't he? Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that this, this extract immediately follows um, the discussion of war, uh, which is interrupted by Brabantio with his accusation to Othello. So he is, this speech comes in the middle of a discussion about, about war as well. Yeah, and, and of course he's been called to the court for two reasons as well. He's been called there because of they need him as a soldier and because of Brabantio's accusation. So there's something interesting about how structurally this scene shows us Othello's kind of position in Venice. He's an outsider, he's a mercenary, a soldier who's not Venetian by birth, who is fighting for the Venetian army. Um, uh, and, and is needed by the Venetian army because of his heroism. He is, as the, the epithets that are used to describe him throughout the play are brave and valiant. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the language certainly reflects this, the feats of broil and battles certainly time with this idea. He's a, he is a brave and valiant, but perhaps also violent man. Um, there is also something troubling in terms of the violence that Othello notes. He, he talks about um, how um, he would... Can, he says right at the end, he says, um, Ancient conduct them, you best know the place. Until she come, as truly as to heaven, I do confess the vices of my blood. So justly to your great ears, I'll present how I did thrive in this fair lady's love. What kind of acknowledgement is that? The vices in my blood. What's, he, what's quite troubling about this, I guess? Um, I suppose um, he could be talking about his, his violent nature uh, and how you know, he's, 
he's only been uh, at war. So um, it could be to do with his his warrior nature. Yeah, and a, a great thing to do in the exam is to look at different possibilities and tease them out. So certainly one is that this idea of him as a warrior nature. There's also perhaps, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but the idea of an acknowledgement of early modern prejudices against uh, against Moors. The idea that, that, that is there something, an acknowledgement that, that he sees something in himself um, defined by his race. In a play that's so much about racial identity that um, you know, it's so, that has kind of this horrible racism of Iago kind of running through the play, there is something troubling about a fellow seeming to conform to those stereotypes, as if he himself perhaps has vices that he, that he sees. That is troubling, I think, particularly for modern audiences. And that's yes. something certainly that we can say as when we comment upon the play. Reading this in uh, 2022 is, is very different from perhaps the experience of those first audiences. I think there's one final echo, but just for this paragraph, that I kind of quite think is quite interesting as well. There's echoes here. Because, of course, his final speech in the whole play before he kills himself is to remind the, the people assembled in his bedroom in Cyprus about how he killed the turban Turk, how he fought in this war, um, and how he, um, in fact, his final words would be, smote him thus. He, he, he reimagines killing this man in, in battle as he kills himself. And so it's the idea that the play begins and ends with a fellow defined by violence is certainly quite a powerful, powerful thing in a play that is predominantly focused not on violence, but on this kind of world of the domestic. Is is it a play, therefore, about a man who's kind of out of his place, out, you know, suited to the battlefield, but perhaps struggling in the social world? But I think that brings us to our last point. I think the crucial thing, really, with this essay is that we also acknowledge that certainly at this point in the play, Othello seems to have quite a different conception of women from other characters in the play. We've so far seen women objectified by Iago. He uses um, that metaphor um, of, 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 of Desdemona as a land carrack, a treasure ship to be boarded and traded and stolen and um, you know this is you know misogynistic language isn't it defining um, but here we have that actually Othello's relationship with Desdemona um, seems at this point more positive I mean what does he do in terms what's revealed about Othello's relationship with Desdemona here well, he says um, that he, he thrives in this fair lady's love, so suggesting that um, their relationship allows him to grow and, and change. Um, and that is something that we start to see in the play, and then tragically that is um, derailed by Iago, um, and we see Othello actually confined to, to the stereotypes that start with him uh, at the beginning. Uh, but certainly at this point he says, um, you know, I thrive. Yeah, thrive is really life. interesting verb, isn't it? Because yeah. it, it's suggesting that far from... The marriage being kind of a boon to her, suggesting that her love is nourishing him, that he is the one that's changing, that's growing. This is an example. She's not an object to be won. She's someone who's changed him, which is very different from Brabantio and Iago and Rodrigo's conceptions of what women are, I think, yeah, isn't it? She's, she's an object to them, whereas to Othello, she's certainly a person and a powerful one. And structurally also, he says, send for the lady, let her speak to me before her father. If you do find me found on her report, the trust the officer hold of you, not only take away, but let your sentence even fall upon my life. Um, he trusts his own life, which he previously has taken into his own control on the battlefield, to his wife's words. Um, he gives her voice. He gives the, the great word for us to use is agency, the ability to make decisions. He gives her choice. He gives her a voice. And of course, the tragedy is in the play. This is ultimately how he kills her. He smothers her. He takes away her voice. This is a play of him first giving her a voice and then, unfortunately, seduced by the, the, the words of Iago, then taking it away. Is that how you read it as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, at this point he he treats her as an equal and, in fact, um, is a, is a, there's a kind of gratitude there. There's a... a, a um, 
awareness that she has she has given him something, given him life, and given him um, the ability to grow. And yeah, that that's certainly reversed by the end. I think the other kind of thing that I noticed, kind of um, revising this play with with Year Eleven at the moment, is that this motif of that runs throughout the whole play of language, particularly Iago's language, as poison. It's something that appears again and again throughout the play. That um, uh, and we see that kind of here actually echoed in the in the in Brabantio's language. Um, he says when he talks about that, you know that. Um, oh no, it's, sorry, it's the first. It's my place here. Where's poison? Uh, oh, this is very unpolished. Apologies, listeners. Um, oh, in the so it's the first senator. I think he suggests yes. that a fellow subdued and, and poisoned this young mate's affection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first senator um, accuses him again. It's the same metaphor. It's, it's linked to this idea of his uh, of him using magic to win her. But poisoning is an interesting kind of echo of what, of course, Iago does throughout the play. Because of course, crucially, the irony is that a fellow does not poison Desdemona at this point, but he is subject to the poisoning of his ancient. That Iago will poison him with his language. Mm-hmm. Um, something which the structure of the play with all of Iago's soliloquies has really kind of made us aware of by this point. Because I think that's the last point really kind of, for me, um, about Othello at this point in the play, is crucially, in a play called Othello, the character we've seen the most of and who we'd be most connected with for huge swathes of Act One is Iago. Um, uh, we don't hear Othello's thoughts. Othello's soliloquies come later in the play. We've only had soliloquies by Iago. So actually, this is the first sight, really, of Othello revealing who he is. But crucially, he's doing it in this formal public setting, speaking forth for, for Desdemona in front of the Duke. So actually, um, in terms of the question, how does Shakespeare present Othello at this moment in the play? What we see is the public face of Othello here. And it's only later that we see his private insecurities, and we see, and which, which shows us tragically you know, his breakdown in the very things that made him so admirable early yeah, on. Absolutely, and, and perhaps it's fitting that we meet him at this sort of tragic height, you know, of his of his um, his strength. You know, he's currently the most um, the most revered warrior who's they're going to ask for his help in fighting. And he also says at this point that he thrives in Desdemona's love and, and she in his. Um, and so the rest of the play, as we would expect with a tragedy, is going to be his descent mm. from that, that I think height. that's pr- probably something we can say for our conclusion, because often mm-hmm. students struggle to know what to write in the conclusion. And it's kind of worth, it's kind of thinking of it, it's that zooming out, is that how you th- conceive it? Like yeah. that thinking like, well, what's, so what? Why does it all matter? Yeah. What's the point of this scene? Why, why does Shakespeare show us Othello at this moment, as you kind of alluded to? Yeah, uh, I think it, it's partly to do with that tragic structure, isn't it? The, the further you fall, the more dramatic it is. Obviously, we're thinking about it as a play, and we are the audience experiencing that, that, that power of that fall. Um, it's important that we see him at a great height. And perhaps that, that formality actually creates a bit of distance. We don't see him as, uh, as much of a real... Um, identifiable person right now he's he's greater than great isn't he he's he's eloquent he's strong he he believes in love and he can express it um and that means that he can fall further yeah and given the intimacy that the audience has with the army created by those soliloquies all the way through there's also this dramatic irony running through that we know this isn't going to last Mm -hmm. there's a sense isn't there of this moment being temporary and that the, the, the heights of his love, of his um, affection, and of his nobility are going to be undone. That's really kind of everything I had. We're kind of coming to the 20-minute mark. Is there any final thoughts you had on the extracts or on the question, really? Um, no, I think, uh, I think um, that's, that's mostly it. I think um, 
If we're coming back to the question and maybe mentioning the, the, the performance element of this, uh, it, it's always useful, I think, to visualise the scene. And a fellow at this point, he's, he's somewhere between being a guest and being on trial. Uh, mm -hmm. If we think about what he's been accused of, um, he is then having to answer that. Uh, so it's thinking about how that might be performed, uh, and you might have seen a production that you can refer to as well. Thinking yeah, about whether this seems like a trial or a, or a speech. And actually, even thinking, even mentioning an essay is a final thought, really. What what it would look visually like on stage. I mean, Othello's centre stage before the Duke. The visual aspects of the trial that echoes there, that does foreshadow the way in which he will, of course, be captured by Lodovico and the others right at the end in Act Five is certainly going to be that, that kind of visual symmetry of the play um, is always something that's impressive to be talking about. Well, thank you so much for joining me for the podcast today. Um, I hope it's useful, dear listeners. Um, we'll be back with more soon.